The Dallas, Texas of the North. This week, reporters in Dallas, Texas were holding up Edmonton as a bastion of traffic safety. Meanwhile, in the bastion of traffic safety, it's still not legal to photo-enforce speed limits on residential roads. But the pause may be ending soon. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 242. We're back in our home studios after the train ride. And Mac, it has been over a week since the train has officially launched. And there have been no, to my knowledge, reported collisions of cars driving into the train. So some people, and you know who you are, you owe me some money. (laughs) I think you're right. I don't think there's been any actual collisions. There have been countless close calls. That train is always honking, uh, especially as it's going through some of those left turn areas with cars. But yes, knock on wood, fingers crossed. Maybe people got the message with, what, five years of testing? Well, we should at least make it sound more fun. You know, I'm thinking of like the van in the Ant-Man movie or something like that. We could have a better sound. But of course, the best sound each week is mine and your voices telling all about uh, the news from City Hall this week. And we're going to do that right now. But first, I want to let you know that this episode is brought to you by the Edmonton Community Foundation. And did you know, dear listener, that the cost of healthy food for a year for a family of four has increased by nearly $5,000 since 2013? Each year, the Edmonton Community Foundation and Edmonton Social Planning Council produce a report called Vital Signs to measure how the community is doing. Spoiler alert, um, not great right now, uh, I think is the conclusion. Uh, This year's report focuses on food security and how it has changed over the last 10 years and where we are today. You can see the latest report at ecfoundation.org slash vital signs. Well, Mac, we were on the train last week and we did not ask anyone to be on that train. Uh, I showed up with a box of microphones and cords and a crew of people and I said, we're recording on this train now. I've learned this week that I was in contravention of city policy, apparently. Or at least a misunderstanding about this policy. Yeah, I figured we were safe last week, given that we had the branch manager of ETS and two city councillors riding along with us. And indeed, you know, drivers didn't seem fussed at all that we had recording equipment on the train. Though I will say the operator of the train at one point said, hey, make sure to keep that cord out of the walkway. Uh, So he was monitoring the safety of the train. Kudos to him. As he should have been doing, exactly. But when media were first on the train on the Thursday right before it opened, in that news release, the city did talk about this policy where they wanted the media to give them a heads up that they would be filming on transit property ostensibly so that they could ensure that everything is safe and that the operations of the train are not impacted. And there were some journalists at that time, including um, post-media reporter Lauren Boothby, who kind of cocked their head and said, that doesn't seem right. And indeed, if you think about that for a few seconds, that's a pretty poor policy. Uh, You can't restrict media from doing their jobs in public places. That's just a bit absurd. That's not what we do in democratic countries like Canada. And so, you know, I saw some tweets about it. I saw some posts about it. And I kind of thought that was the end of it, Troy, until a new article (laughs) appeared. Yeah. So the Canadian Constitution Foundation has argued in a letter that this is unconstitutional and unjustifiable and has threatened a lawsuit against the city of Edmonton if this policy isn't repealed. And the city of Edmonton, um, did an almost I'm rubber and your glue response saying, nah, there's no policy. Right. They said this is a misunderstanding. There's not really a policy here and indicated in a way that this is a bit of an absurd 
situation. Like this has become a mountain out of a molehill, which is what I've been thinking over the last few days. Uh, this article also talks to Brent Jolly, who's the president of the Canadian Association of Journalists. And of course, he says all the things you would expect someone in his position to say that this is absurd. The journalist shouldn't have to give notice or get permission to report in public places and that no jurisdiction in the country denies such access. And so all of this, Troy, to me is you know, I have two thoughts on this. The first and overriding thought is just go take the pictures and see if anyone stops <laughs> you. No one's going to stop you. Journalists, some journalists are journalists because they like getting into places they're not supposed to go and they don't ask for permission to do it. They That's part of the exciting work that they do in their job. So I don't think there's really any concern here about that. If you went with a camera and started recording, you know, something near the train or whatever, no one's going to stop you. Don't be obtuse. Do it safely. Don't get in the way of the operators or the trains or whatever. But otherwise, nobody's going to stop you. The other much smaller thought is that in a very tiny way, I'm grateful that there are people out there who try to hold the city to account to make sure that there isn't actually a policy like this, you know, on the books. I don't think it needs to be blown up into this big thing. The city seems to be aware that it misspoke at, at best, if that's the most charitable interpretation of this, and is, you know, walking that back. And so I think hopefully we can move on from media notification gate. I personally think that the city didn't misspeak. The city 100% had this policy on the books. Uh, we have heard a couple journalists, I think uh, City News journalist Carly Robinson also tweeted that she has been in the past asked to not film on transit property. So there's some evidence that this has been enforced in the past. The city says, you know, this is about film and making sure The Last of Us isn't filming on the trains without permission. I think the best explanation of this is the city is an organization with 14,000 employees. I imagine, you know, 10 of those employees thought protecting transit operators is pretty great. Protecting transit riders and making the system smooth and efficient by prohibiting this is great. And they didn't talk to the 7,000 lawyers that work at the city <laughs> to make sure, is this actually great? But I think with all of this news, you are 100% right. There is no way that this policy remains on the books going forward. And even if you were stopped and somebody said, don't film here, they're not going to forcibly remove you from the train platform. Like, I find that pretty questionable. There's pretty strong evidence that no one gets forcibly removed from a train platform. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think that's fair. <laughs> that wasn't the only city policy that was taking a little bit of flack this week, though, because signs have been cropping up on a few River Valley wooden stairs around the city saying that these stairs have, quote, no winter maintenance, end quote. And we're warning residents that if you trip and fall and die, that's because this is a blizzard covered no man's land. And many residents, including a city councillor, said, but wait, I'm pretty sure the city has been clearing those stairs every winter. Yeah, that was Councillor Andrew Knack. He recognizes that this is going to have some frustration and confusion among residents. Uh, apparently, there are 34 staircases around the River Valley, throughout the River Valley, where these signs have been installed, which strikes me as a surprisingly low number. I feel like there's got to be more stairs throughout the River Valley than 34 staircases. But, And that's what the city is saying here, is that these signs are really about managing expectations and said that actually seven of these staircases were cleared in error during previous winters, <laughs> which is a weird way to put it. Like you cleared a staircase, how can that be an error? That seems like a positive thing for anybody who uses these staircases, right? The overriding message from the city here is that they aren't changing 
the quality or level of service here. They're just trying to clarify expectations. And when we were chatting about this before the show, Troy, you mentioned that we might see more of this in the weeks ahead. Yeah, this story can be a bit of a nothing story because at the end of the day, you know, a lot of these staircases weren't cleared super well in most winters. And a staircase made of wood, you don't usually have a super high expectation that it's pristine and there's no, you know, wheelchair user accessibility concern because it is stairs. Right. But what this indicates to me is that the city is taking OP12, their cost savings budget motion, to an extreme. And where previously an operator might have said, it's my job to clear snow and just cleared a staircase, it has been made clear that that is an error. You shouldn't do things that we are not cleared to do. And I think the city in their cost savings are going to find a lot of line items at the city where there's no explicit policy, there's no explicit procedure saying we're supposed to do this specific thing. So that thing won't get done anymore. Sort of a work to rule type scenario. In past years, one of the most ridiculous things we've seen is places like Garneau and Strathcona, where the bike lanes are installed as an extra wide sidewalk, you know, a second set of concrete beside the first set of concrete. Bike lane clearing staff will go and clear the bike lane and leave the sidewalk directly beside it, covered in snow. Sometimes they'll be driving off of the bike. They're putting a lot of effort in to not clear that sidewalk. That's rightly a nonsensical thing to do. They should just clear that sidewalk. Who cares if those homeowners get free sidewalk clearing? The point of clearing is to clear. I worry we're going to get a lot of this by the book exactly. This is what we're funded, so this is all we're going to do as a way of, you know, saving money, but also that's going to be a significant reduction to service. When operators and individual staff don't have the leeway to just make the city better because they can, that's where you get a lot of things that get left because there's no specific budget item to fix that thing that's unexpected. And I think this is going to be a big problem. I think when city councillors agree to a program or a service, they generally don't, you know, with, with few exceptions, get right into the weeds of specifying how the people who do that job are meant to do it, right? They talk about the outcomes, this amount of money is for this program. If we do this program, we'll get these kinds of things in the end. This is a little bit like the city's trying to set expectations with council about things that they approve funding for and saying, you know, at a very detailed level through the media, funding for snow clearing covers this, but not that. And I think that probably goes against the spirit of what most city councillors have in mind when they vote in favor of these things. And I wonder what will happen now when we get to budget time and they're like, okay, I think we should improve snow clearing. Here's another $2 million, which you know they previously approved, recently approved. But now we have to get into the weeds about what does that actually mean? What does that look like? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Maybe it's a good thing because there's greater clarity. But on the whole, I feel like it's a bad thing. We should strive to the best possible service. You know, as you say, why wouldn't you just clear the sidewalk right beside the bike lane? That would be the logical, sensible thing to do. And to not do it simply because we're trying to do this by the book thing, I think, is the wrong kind of culture to create. What you've talked about, the sort of litigating the budget through the media, this isn't new. We've seen this before. Uh, A few episodes ago, we talked about winter sand and the sandboxes at community leagues. And the city has gotten far ahead of it. Not next year. Next year will be fine. But the year after that, we're going to substantially reduce service. And they're almost baiting the outcry early so that they can deal with it and get it done with before they make a decision and are forced to go back on it from council, which 
You know, there are positives to this situation. Mm -hmm. I would much rather us have the fights before we did the thing. I think back to the um, suicide prevention barriers on the high-level bridge. Yeah. Rightly so. Wanted to get done very quickly, very efficiently. Not a lot of public debate because when you have public debate about suicide, many people attempt suicide. But the result is we got something that we weren't promised that was larger and more obstructive than the designs. And there was really no oversight. And by the time we had the fight, it was too late. This is obviously... Snow clearing on stairs is a little bit more low stakes compared to that. It's two sides of the same coin, over notice and there's under notice. And we've got to find that happy balance. And that happy balance has to come from people feeling enfranchised to do their job and enfranchised to go above and beyond to make their job better. And I don't think we're giving the city the tools to do that. A little random thought occurred to me, Troy, as you're talking. You mentioned earlier the 7,000 or so uh, lawyers that the city employs. <laughs> do you, is it possible that these signs are there simply because of the lawyers? I would absolutely not be surprised if it was some lawyer somewhere that said, Let's patch this liability hole. I imagine there's some level of legal auditing that happens constantly at the city yeah. just to identify specific vulnerabilities like this. Manage risk. Yeah. Of course, one thing the lawyers have been looking at for the past couple of years since the government of Alberta has implemented a photo radar freeze on new locations has been our photo radar program. Exactly how can we continue to operate this automated enforcement program that provided substantial revenue to the city and safety goals as well, it is looking like perhaps the thaw, the end of the freeze, is in sight. This freeze, which came into effect in 2019, is scheduled to end on December 1st this year. So we're coming right up against this deadline. The province hasn't clarified whether or not it's going to extend the freeze or not, but it does seem like there's a possibility that it ends. Uh, so we don't really have any news about that for you this week. But one of the things that was pointed out in the CBC article about this that was interesting to me was Councillor Joanne Wright. And, and she was talking about what she's heard from her constituents. They're concerned about speeding on city streets. And she pointed out, and I had forgotten this, Troy, that even if this freeze is lifted on December 1st, we can't actually put automated enforcement on streets where the speed limit is below 50 kilometers an hour which in Edmonton is a lot of them. Yeah, all of them, basically. All residential roads have been lowered to 40 kilometers an hour as a default speed limit, except the ones that are specifically signed to 50 as an exception. This has always been a sort of laughing, gaping hole in the but it's for safety argument. The province argued that photo radar wasn't being used explicitly for safety and passed some regulations. And in it, they included this inexplicable line item that said if the default speed limit is on the road is less than 40 kilometers an hour, you can't enforce there. Uh, now, you are allowed to enforce in playground zones that was included in the regulation, but the rest of the roadway around the playground zones that are set to 40, you can't enforce it. I can see the thinking of someone in Jason Kenney's government who says, I don't want a municipality setting the default speed limit to 15 kilometers an hour and billing everyone in the city every time they drive. But it ignores reality. It ignores <laughs> the two big cities in Edmonton and all their uh, suburban counterparts. Edmonton, Calgary, Fort Saskatchewan, St. Albert, 40 kilometers an hour is a default in a lot of these places. It is absurd that we can't enforce in exactly where we want to enforce in, where our children are playing, where kids are walking to school, where people are trying to live their lives in a calm, relaxing manner. I don't think it matters, honestly, Mac, though, because if I was a betting man, I would say there's a 0% chance this freeze ends. I've seen Danielle Smith government 
governed before. And I cannot imagine them saying, as a Christmas gift to all Albertans, more photo radar locations all across Edmonton. <laughs> You're welcome. You're probably right about that. Uh, Minister Devin Dreeshen, Alberta's Minister of Transportation and Economic Corridors, said they're still working on a decision of what will come after December 1st, but said it's basically just an internal discussion of options. So it doesn't sound like a freeze or an announcement or anything like that is imminent. So you're probably right. And of course, the city has planned for this back uh, in the police budget discussion. We have transitioned all of our money, around $20 million that we typically transferred from photo radar enforcement fines to the Edmonton police. And we've added that as a line item budget to the Edmonton police. It no longer comes from photo radar funds. It just comes from general tax revenue in anticipation of the photo radar funds drying up. Yeah. I don't know what it looks like for city budgets going forward, but I think if you look at governance in Alberta, one of the most staunch advocates against photo radar that I can think of off the top of my mind is Brian Mason, the former NDP transportation minister. Rachel Notley has spoken at length against photo radar. It's the same thing as a provincial sales tax. You always win points by saying, I'm not going to implement a PST. You always win points by saying, photo radar bad. So given that no viable government wants to support photo radar, I can't imagine the automated enforcement system in Edmonton is going to see a good news Christmas gift. But the community of Allard is going to get a Christmas gift in the form of a community league. It's not quite done yet, but on November 22nd, when it holds its first annual general meeting and board election, it will have completed the last of 15 steps to become a community league, the newest in Edmonton at 163. This was some really interesting reporting from Taproot's uh, reporter Colin Gallant this week. I would have had him on the show, of course, but he's a very busy man. He's preparing to host a screening at Metro Cinema on behalf of Taproot, so he couldn't join us today. But his story kind of talks about how Allard got to be a community league in such record time. Usually it takes groups about two years, according to the EFCL, and this community league has done it in just about eight months. Allard is really far south. The southern boundary is the edge of Edmonton, essentially, at 41st Avenue Southwest. And there are 15 steps, right, that you mentioned that needed to be completed, and uh, it has completed all of those. So that's pretty exciting, and more community leagues is good in Edmonton. One notable community that doesn't quite yet have a community league is our oft-talked-about Blatchford. Is there quite a community there? Well, the community would argue, yes, they're active on Twitter, and they correct me and send me over to look at train tracks. But the EFCL does require a population of at least 5,000 to establish a community league, and Blatchford isn't quite there yet. Yeah, Blatchford has, what, 100 people currently? Uh, that's the estimate from folks who are trying to get a community league established there. Allard, in contrast, has a population of almost 7,000 people, and so uh, clearly uh, met that uh, that that boundary. Um, but Blatchford, you know, even though it's small, the point here for residents who want to establish a community league is that they're just different than the neighboring communities and that, you know, being absorbed into or served by one of those, you know, other surrounding community leagues, maybe Spruce Avenue, for example, which is nearby, doesn't really work because there's such a difference between those other neighborhoods and what they're doing in Blatchford. But they have engaged with the FCL. They have done some things like make sure that their bylaws are set up so that they won't get into trouble down the road and, and all of that kind of thing when they actually do reach the population threshold, which we all hope is going to happen for that community. And then they can proceed with the remaining steps. 
Yeah, of course, Blatchford is this urban utopia with, uh, if you've been there, it's got curbs jutting out. It's got uh, safe walking infrastructure. And for the city of Dallas, Texas, safe walking infrastructure might as well be on the surface of Mars. Um, There was reporting (laughs) uh, from NBC5, a Texas news station, where they sent a reporter to Edmonton to learn about the city's Vision Zero initiative. And Mac, I got to say, they called scramble intersections as wacky out of this world crossings i didn't think edmonton was on the bleeding edge but after this news report we're from the year 2098 oh yeah we, we might as well be on a different planet as you say i love this story when i saw this this week first they sent a reporter all the way here which is kind of impressive and uh and did some reporting i didn't watch the video you did you said it's like an eight minute video but i read the uh, i read the story and everything they describe edmonton this way it says quote so maybe dallas could learn something from this canadian town a place where crosswalks can be installed diagonally and may resemble something from the land of oz end quote <laughs> It's like the multiverse or something. They think they've traveled into the multiverse when they come to Edmonton. The main reason I love this story, Troy, is that we criticize things in Edmonton all the time. We talk about how we still haven't gotten as far along as we should have in Vision Zero. Why did we make that decision? That doesn't seem aligned with traffic safety. And it's just a good reminder that there are big cities not that far away, like Dallas, that are far behind where Edmonton is. And so maybe for all of the maybe justified criticism we levy at, uh, at things that happen in our own city, it's not all that bad. Yeah, so Dallas has a similar population size to the city of Edmonton, uh, at least the city's proper, not including their metro areas. Dallas reported 228 traffic deaths in 2022, while Edmonton in the same period reported 14. I think there's a fair amount of Dallas doing something wrong here. Yeah. But there's also a fair amount of Edmonton doing something right. It's a low bar to clear to be better than Dallas, but I think we've more than cleared it. Uh, It is nice to appreciate how far we've come. And like you said, I watched the video. I encourage everyone to watch it because it's like a tourism reel for Edmonton. It makes me pretty proud to go through and see all the shots they're taking from around the city. And while they're talking about it, with awe as if this is something magical it really is something where i'm like yeah we have done all this stuff this is pretty good nice budget for production values i question their budget for fact checking (laughs) uh there's a part of the story that talks about how much money they spend on vision zero and they suggest that in addition to like full-time staff in edmonton that our city spends 180 million dollars per year redeveloping neighborhoods with a heavy vision zero focus think that's a bit of an exaggeration. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe the city would have liked to communicate that our neighborhood renewal does incorporate Vision Zero elements. I don't think it's fair to say that neighborhood renewal has a heavy Vision Zero focus. One final thing I want to talk about this week, in advance of budget coming up over the next month, most years, the supplementary budget adjustment is not newsworthy. Usually, council is just doing what administration recommends. They're tweaking the budget. I think this year's budget is going to be quite acrimonious. And I got into this because at the last meeting of council where they talked about budget, they were agreeing on the process for the upcoming budget adjustments. Many councillors started to indicate they want something done differently. And in the case of Councillor Aaron Rutherford, she indicated her goodwill has all but dried up. 
So a couple of things that we should make clear about this budget process. This is a budget adjustment, as you said. So council has already passed a four-year budget, which means we are in alignment and onside with all of the provincial regulations that say we must have passed a budget. So this adjustment is not legally required, but it would be uh, a way for council to make changes to incorporate reality uh, from the past year since they passed that four-year budget. So that's the first thing to point out. We don't technically need to pass a budget by the end of the year. The other thing to point out is what you said, which is this process. So we always have this base budget motion. This is from administration and they make, you know, some proposed increases. In this case, you know, the proposed increase of what is it? 7.09% would be part of that base budget motion. And then all of the councillors propose amendments and then they debate those in a sort of random order, if I understand correctly, and then they would vote on the amended budget. And as you pointed out in a really informative uh, Twitter thread, Troy, there's a possibility here that councillors could propose an amendment that substantially increases the size of the budget, that gets approved, and then they could vote against the whole budget in the end. So it's not a possibility, Mac. It's a guarantee. And it's a guarantee because we have seen it happen in every budget the city of Edmonton has ever passed in the history of forever. Uh, Mike Nichol was known to do this frequently, though, to Mike Nichols' credit, he did propose fewer budget increases than his newer council colleagues. I'm thinking of people like Tim Cartmel and Sarah Hamilton and Jennifer Rice and Karen Principe, who have a habit of proposing very expensive budget increases and then voting against the budget. So what I wanted to do is, as a thought exercise, okay, last budget, we had five people vote against the operating budget. In an eight to five vote, it passed. Yeah. W what would have happened if it went the other way? What would have happened if it failed? So I dug into it a little bit, and I think it's interesting to get into council's psyche and really understand the dilemma that they're put in here. Basically, as you said, the city must pass a budget. They are legally required to by the MGA. Um, the MGA requires a budget every year, but it has exceptions for cities that want to do what we did, where you can pass one every four years. And that's what we do. So last year, we passed our four-year budget, so we're good. We have a budget. However, this year, we have a budget adjustment to fund new things that happen. So one were increased utility costs, but the big one was increased policing costs. And this was by council decision. They approved a new police funding formula that gave raises to the police. And it said that salary settlements are outside of the funding formula and the city will cover those salary settlements. Council, through significant acrimony, did pass that motion. I'll note that all five of the councillors who voted against the operating budget voted in favor of the police funding formula to give more money to police. But that motion didn't actually fund the police. It is basically an unfunded mandate. They said, we're passing this funding formula, but we haven't put any dollars towards it. We promised to do that later. And city administration is coming at the end of the year and saying, okay, you promised at the start of the year to pay all this money. You need to increase taxes by, you know, 2% more than you intended to in order to fund it. So what happens if council doesn't? do that. Is it a possibility that we just don't fund the salary settlements? To the best of my knowledge, no. It appears as if the city is legally required. This is binding arbitration. When you enter in an agreement to do binding arbitration, you are bound by the result of right. the arbitration. That's the point. So the city has to pay these salary settlements. So if we have to pay the salary settlements, then the money's got to come from somewhere. If we don't increase taxes to pay for it, that means we're taking from city services? Inevitably, yeah. So the city has to 
have a budget and the city can't run a deficit. So administrators would have to find the money somewhere else. Maybe they're cutting a program or service. Let's say, I mean, the best case scenario is city council just passes the budget adjustment. The city is funded. Everything's hunky-dory. Yeah. But if council decides, no, we're going to vote down this budget adjustment, we're not going to give this additional 2% of funding. At that point, the city has a passed budget. They passed it last year. And the city has to operate with that budget. But that necessitates that administrators must not follow council direction, right? Council has given direction in the four-year budget to fund all these programs and services. And mm. council has given direction in the police funding formula to provide this additional funding to police. And the MGA and the provincial government have given direction that you can't run a deficit. So administrators, by definition, if council doesn't approve this budget adjustment, must violate council's direction intentionally. And legally, that's a weird place to be in. I, I'm not a lawyer. Maybe one of the 7,000 lawyers of the city can <laughs> clarify how this happens. This came up in the meeting with lawyers saying, you know, we'd have to do our best, but we have to pay these salary settlements and we have to run the city. It's a nigh constitutional crisis from a city's perspective if we don't pass this budget adjustment. Now, you mentioned off the top that you kind of treated this as a bit of a thought exercise. What would happen if this came to pass? But we were talking earlier, and uh, we've seen some other reporting as well that piggybacked off your uh, very informative Twitter thread. You're welcome, Keith. Yeah, it's not really a thought exercise. There's a very real possibility that enough councillors vote no to the budget adjustment for their various reasons, and it doesn't pass. What I think it will all come down to is the five that voted against the operating budget. Uh, because like we said, to run up the budget and then vote it down is a really disingenuous exercise. The city must pass a budget. What does it mean to vote against a budget? It doesn't mean anything because you're legally required to have a budget. Yeah. As the clerks and lawyers referenced in the meeting, legally the city can only act by council motion and direction. So you can't force a councillor to support a particular motion that, you know, flies in the face of democracy. Sure. But indeed, we can't just establish the budget only by amendments. You have to vote on a main motion to give direction. So procedurally, we're in a rock and a hard place of actually preventing this. Now, the five that voted against the operating budget. Cartmel, Hamilton, Principe, Rice, and Knack. Correct. And it should be noted that Knack did vote in favor of the capital budget, but he did vote against the operating budget. His justification at the time was due to pulling out of the transit commission. He just couldn't support that. Sure. I think this highlights the severe disingenuousness of voting against the uh, main motion because the transit commission was $11 million of a $2 billion budget. It is really politically disingenuous to vote against for that reason, as he did. Sure. Alas, if one of those five doesn't move, basically the budget motions have been carried by the goodwill of the rest of the council. The rest of the council, acting as serious elected representatives, say, we must pass a budget. I get that you're performing political buffoonery and, you know, appealing to your conservative base, but we must operate as a city. So we'll take the heat. We'll, we'll vote yes for the budget. You can do your political grandstanding over there. But given that the majority of this budget adjustment is to fund police, where the people that had voted in favor of the operating budget last time tended to vote against this police funding increase. And all five that voted against the operating budget when we passed it voted in favor of this funding increase for police. The rest of the table is looking at this and saying, you're trying to have your cake and eat it too. And you're trying to make me wear 
the political downsides of your choices. And Erin Rutherford put it straight to words. She said that her goodwill had dried up. And if she got the indication that those five were not going to support the main budget motion, she'd vote against. And if she votes against, that causes those five, assuming they stay steadfast in their position, to have to either reevaluate the whole budget motion and vote yes, or lose the police funding increase that they worked so hard for and cause a crisis. And beyond all of this, like it's fun to play the political games of like who in Game of Thrones can cause a vote to go which way. Yeah. There are real ramifications of the debate. If you don't pass a budget motion as a city, that signals to investors that you're not a serious city, that you're not a city capable of governing and managing your finances. And there's a very real risk of credit downgrades and other things like that, which means we'd be less able to debt finance for cheap rates. And it will make, go figure, our operating budget more expensive. If we have to pay higher interest rates for all of our debt financing, that costs us more money every year, which makes this whole problem harder. So the message here is don't make it worse than it already needs to be city council and vote in favor of the main motion. There are other knock-on effects. Troy, we would have to do an episode around <laughs> Christmas time if councillors did all vote no and decided they were going to come back before the end of the calendar year to try to relitigate things and pass their budget adjustment. To be honest, council, I don't want to do that. I want to put out my Jeopardy episode and end the year. So let's focus on being serious this year. I mentioned Aaron Rutherford. She wasn't the only one that spoke up against this. Mayor Sohi actually spoke several times in the meeting about the lack of accountability that this process fosters, namely the ability to fund things and then not pay for them. And he was specifically talking about this back in the funding formula discussion. He had questions of administration, you know, how exactly are we voting to spend this money if we're not actually voting to spend the money. It seems that the bill is coming due now. As we mentioned before, five people voted against the operating budget. It takes only two more to switch over, and we've failed a budget motion. And Mac, I have very little optimism that people like Councillor Carmel, Jennifer Rice, Karen Principe, I don't think they're going to be switching their vote anytime soon. Is this a thought exercise? Yeah, for now but it could very quickly become an exercise exercise. Well, budget deliberations get underway on Tuesday, November 21st, and there's lots of uh, follow-up days scheduled after that, 22nd, 27th, 28th, 29th, hopefully not December 31st. <laughs> and of course, we budget time in our episodes as well, and we have spliced off an exact amount at the end for the Rapid Fire segment. The city of Edmonton plans to reach its goal of planting 2 million trees two decades earlier than initially predicted, 2030 instead of 2050. This will expand the urban canopy all over the city, with the very notable exception that the city will absolutely not, under any circumstances, be planting a tree downtown for the holiday kickoff on December 1st. The Federal Court of Canada has overturned the ban on single-use plastics like straws and grocery bags, saying that the regulation which classified those items as toxic was too broad. This is great news for Alberta Premier Daniel Smith, who said in an interview with Rebel News, quote, With this, we can finally roll out Alberta's new vaccination strategy, drinking ivermectin through a disposable swirly straw. 
Uber Tasks, an app where you can request someone to shovel your driveway, wash your clothes, or sing you a bedtime lullaby, will be piloting in Edmonton and Fort Myers, Florida soon. Uber spokesperson Kirthana Rang said of the launch, quote, Edmonton's culture made the city a natural choice for us. The city has a long history of dealing with bad ideas by requesting study, reports, and pilots. Our aim is to run this pilot, funded by venture capital money, just long enough to destabilize several industries. Shouldn't take too long. Troy, you usually get to talk about the pulse at the end of our show, but I'm going to do that this week. We are, of course, a publication of Taproot Edmonton, and one of the other things we publish is The Pulse. It's our daily news briefing, tells you everything you need to know about Edmonton every weekday morning. We provide short, informative updates about what's happening at City Hall, plus coverage of business, tech, food, the arts, and much, much more. You also get a little bit of whimsy and delight in there, features like A Moment in History, and as we published this week, a roundup of the more than 50 holiday craft markets that are coming up <laughs> across the city. So if, uh, if you're looking for something to do in the weekends ahead, we've got you covered. You can find The Pulse and everything else we publish at taprodemonton.ca. And that's all for this week. And as we say at the end of every episode, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking, Speaking Municipally. municipally. Yeah, you thought I was going to do a catchphrase. Nope. <laughs>